0: Standard. Welcome to the Dr. Hedberg Show for cutting edge practical health information. For the latest articles, videos, and podcasts, visit drhedberg.com. That's D R H E D B E R G.com. The information in this show is intended for educational purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional before attempting anything recommended in this program. And now, here's Dr. Hedberg. Uh, this
1: is Dr. Hedberg. Thanks for well, welcome, everyone, to Functional Medicine Research. I'm Dr. Hedberg, and I'm really looking forward to my conversation today with Rob Wolf. And Rob is a former research biochemist, and he's a two-times New York best, New York Times, Wall Street Journal best-selling author of two books, The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat, and he co-authored a book with Diana Rogers, which we'll be talking about today, called Sacred Cow. And that explains why well-raised meat is good for us and good for the planet. Rob has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast, books, and seminars. He's known for his direct approach and ability to distill and synthesize information to make the complicated stuff easier to understand. Rob, welcome to the show. Doc, huge honor to be here. Thank you. Great. Yeah, I had uh, Diana on last year, and we talked uh, a little bit about uh, plant-based diets and meat and things like that. And then since then, we've had the new Sacred Cow book that you co-authored and the documentary, which is excellent. And so why don't we begin by, I'd really like to focus on helping the listeners understand some of the you know the misunderstandings and, and the truths and the myths about eating meat versus plants and things like that. And so why don't we start with a discussion about why meat has become a scapegoat. And I think, and and you can expand on this of course, but I think part of this probably goes to Alan Keyes' work in the 20th century, uh, his promote misinformation, promotion of misinformation on saturated fat. Can you take us from that point up to where we are now and why you think Meat has 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 been getting such
0: bad press. Yeah, you know it's it it's interesting and worth noting. the The book covers the uh, health, environmental, and ethical considerations of a a meat or animal product inclusive food system. You know, so the raising and the selling and the slaughter and the the whole deal. And all of those points are are important. And all of those points have some really interesting historical uh, antecedents, I, I I guess, kind of, kind of describing why in different cultures meat would become vilified to varying degrees. And like, like food is an interesting cultural tool for defining self from non-self. Like if we look within the Abrahamic religions, there are some very specific delineations of what is and is not allowed within say Judaism versus Christianity versus Islam. And we see similar things within different, uh, Buddhist traditions and whatnot. So, I mean, it, it, it or, or even just within, um, Christianity itself, you have like, uh, uh the seventh day Adventist versus, you know, certain rules and, and followings within Catholicism, you know? And so it, it's interesting that food is, a a a powerful tool for defining self from non-self and not infrequently it is the the beginning point of of creating out of accepted groups of people like there there's some pretty ugly historical examples of of where the different food practices of of one religion or one type of people start being used as a as a means of kind of ostracizing and kind of walling those folks off but we have these three different pieces that we, if we're really going to do diligence on this topic that we have to address. And, you know, the, the Ansel Keys piece is, is interesting in that, uh, he was a, a, very well-known biochemist, um, did some early research that, that, uh, suggested that fat intake in general and animal fat intake specifically, Um, was kind of a a linear correlation with uh, cardiovascular disease. And uh, he did this around the 1950s. And it it was called the uh, Seven Countries Study. Um, One of the problems with this was that he omitted either purposefully or unpurposely a bunch of other data that didn't really fit this, this linear demarcation. Like there are places where folks eat far less Fat than than uh, say in westernized countries and have higher um, incidences of cardiovascular disease, and there are places that eat far more fat than uh, say like Western Europe and and the United States that have far less, and so there's really kind of a a, a not great overlap there, um, and it, it's worth noting that. He's uh, spearheaded some really fascinating research, and one of these these uh, research projects uh, is something that we could never ever do today. There's no IRB board that would would sign off on this, and it involved a study with thousands of institutionalized mental patients who were fed uh, kind of a standard diet and and uh, you know a fairly rich in saturated fat, and then a modified diet that was enriched with, uh, in theory, heart-healthy polyunsaturated fats from like corn oil and safflower oil and what have you. And what's interesting is this is as close to like a metabolic ward study as one is ever likely to have, and it had a lot of people in it. So the, you know, the power there is, is, is fantastic from a statistical standpoint. But what they found in this is that the the folks that were eating the polyunsaturated fats, their cholesterol did in fact go down, but that actually correlated with increased rates of morbidity and mortality as it relates to cardiovascular disease, more stroke and heart attack. So it was completely counterintuitive to what the, you know, kind of the standard diet heart hypothesis would would put forward. And this, it, it's worth noting that this study was completed, wrapped up, and then never published and ended up just kind of sitting in a a, a basement for the better part of 40 years until somebody found it at, at, not that long ago, maybe uh, 2016, 2017, this thing was rediscovered and, and got a fair amount of airplay because it really... Calls into question all of Ansel Keys' original kind of findings and suggestions, and it certainly flies in the face of what we're we're generally told to to follow from the United States Dietary Guidelines. So, in the book, we kind of detail uh, the work of Ansel Keys, um, kind of some some interesting developments, uh, kind of sociopolitically, like Richard Nixon was looking to get reelected and he wasn't doing so well, and he needed a a Loyal conservative base that would support him, and uh, farmers were a pretty good, pretty good option in that regard. And part of his his uh, offerings for building loyalty was re-expanding the farm subsidies programs that had been largely wound down after World War II and uh with this this subsidies program these farmers were incentivized to just produce it didn't really matter if we needed more corn or soybeans or wheat or what have you it, it uh we we were we were just incentivizing that production and so for uh, several years we had these huge gluts of food that we didn't know what to do with it and then right around this time the a a process had been understood to convert a. a corn syrups into high fructose corn syrup and and make it very very sweet very palatable but it was a very expensive process but it was it was right around this this uh, early 1970s that it, an industrial scale inexpensive process for uh, uh converting corn into high fructose corn syrup was developed and this was the beginning of the relationship also between the uh what what we would now I think call the junk food industry and uh, the governmental food surplus, you know, kind of, kind of mm-hmm. scenario. So we needed to do something with this food, this food needed a long shelf life. And, uh, we, you know, um, these, these food manufacturers were all too happy to employ their, their food chemists and figuring out how to, how, how to make the stuff both taste tasty and also kind of like a Twinkie, like have a nearly infinite shelf life. So, um, some folks present this as, as kind of like this evil cabal of people you know twisting mustaches to to uh enslave the masses and I I don't buy into that stuff at all but I do think that we are the recipients of a bunch of really dumb luck that that uh some decisions that were unconnected initially but became connected on the on the back end ended up leading us to what is our our modern industrial row crop food system and uh, the dietary guidelines that, that go along with it, that support it's the perpetuation of basically what that row crop food system stands for. And so that, you know, it's been a 60 years long process with that. And, uh, there's, there's back and forth on, on the topic, you know, one, one week high carb diets are good for you. The next week, low carb diets are good for you. I think the one commonality within this whole story is that, uh, highly processed foods are probably a big problem. And that also the depending on the individual, uh, higher or lower carb diets may be more appropriate given, given an individual's circumstance. And, and, you know, we are investigating topics like individualized or personalized medicine. Like they're finding that some people, when they undergo chemotherapy, they do far, far better if the chemotherapy is administered in the morning versus the evening and other people are the exact opposite. And so when we understand things like that, when we understand that, uh, you know, within a a population, if you give, uh, you know, a thousand people a blood pressure medication, uh, some percentage of those people may see a 10-point reduction, some people a 20-point reduction, and some people you see no reduction. We know that with pharmaceuticals, we know that with uh, the dose response to exercise, but we still haven't applied that same latitude to dietary practices, that there may be different ways of eating that that suit different people better. And that is a a lot of what we attempt to unpack in the book, just just uh making the case that there are a lot of different ways, seemingly, that humans can eat um that lead to better health endpoints than what we see in the, you know, kind of modern Western diet.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd like to take a quick moment to make you aware of some important resources that are available to you. The first is to make you aware that I not only see patients in my practice in Asheville, North Carolina, but I also have a virtual practice where I consult with patients worldwide through telehealth. So it doesn't matter where you live in the world, we could consult through our telehealth software. The second resource is the resources page on my website, where I list all of the supplements and products I use both personally and in my practice. This can be found at drhedberg.com forward slash resources. And the third resource is for healthcare practitioners who want to learn functional medicine or improve their functional medicine skills. I offer online functional medicine courses at the Hedberg Institute, which is my online functional medicine education platform. You can see all the courses I offer at HedbergInstitute.com and sign up to watch a sample course video at no charge. That's HedbergInstitute.com. And now back to the show. Right. And one of the misconceptions I hear when I talk to people and, and talk to patients is that there are concerns about meat and diseases like cancer and heart disease. I think there's just a lot of people out there who believe that meat is bad for you. And there's really no distinction between the quality or the source of the meat, the type of the meat. And also, as I know you'll expand on, there's, there's some issues with the research methodology and the studies on meat and also the types of studies, you know, like an observational study, which doesn't really tell us all that much about an isolated variable, like, like meat in the diet. So can you help the, just allay some of the fears to the listeners about meat and, and you know, is it really unhealthy and does
0: it cause cancer or heart disease? Yeah, you know it is easy to find information like this, and you can find it from the the highest levels of government, like the World Health Organization, all the way down to, you know, uh, local news pieces talking about this stuff. So it's understandable that folks are are really concerned about this. You alluded to one of the big problems in this story, which is the the type of research that's being done, and. Like in, in various drug trials, if we are, are testing whether or not, say, we'll say, say like we're, we're in this, uh, you know, coronavirus pandemic. And so uh, part of what has been happening in the, the research looking at these vaccines, like what do they do and, and do they do they minimize symptoms? Do they minimize severity of disease? Do they actually provide sterilizing immunity? And part of what you have to do in that scenario is you give some people the vaccine you give some people a placebo and we see where those two populations go and so that is a a, a double, typically a double-blinded randomized placebo-controlled trial and this is the gold standard in kind of biomedical science not all situations lend themselves to this though and so it's very expensive, very difficult to feed large populations of people, one type of diet versus another. And even that gets kind of interesting because, you know, can you blind somebody to eating beef versus chicken? And like, is there a, is just a perception of eating one versus the other? Like, will that influence the outcome both for the researchers and the subjects? And, and we, you know, it's, it's, again, it would be monumentally expensive and very, very long to do a, a study. You know, can you take a hundred thousand people, divide them into two groups, have them age, gender, ethnically matched, and then feed them two identical diets with only two different variables in it, and then, you know, track that for 30, 40, 50 years and, and see what the end results are. You know, it's it's bordering on impossible to do that. So the the next best thing that we have and it's not really that good is uh, kind of retrospective epidemiological studies. And it, it's worth noting that these studies were really powerful, very, very important with things like smoking and the connection of smoking to cancer. But in the case of smoking and the development of various cancers, if we were to use kind of an arbitrary number, and uh, it, 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 I'm just kind of using this for a little bit of simplicity, but if the linkage between smoking and cancer was ten thousand, when we look at the linkage between meat consumption and various types of cancers, it's like a two. Like the 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 linkage is really really dubious, and where this. Where this comes from is that they have folks uh, follow what, what's called food frequency questionnaires. It's a retrospective study where they ask people, hey, what did you eat last week, last month, last year? One of the really uh, prominent studies that has been cited suggesting that uh, you know red meat and or processed meat consumption increases colon cancer risk by 20% they were asking people to recall what they had eaten as far as 12 years in the past. And there's a couple of different pieces to that. One is people have terrible memories and two people just lie on these things. Like it's very well understood that the, you know, people will oftentimes fill out what they think that the researchers want them to say. So it's really unclear what you, you know, what the, the actual, data is there, but let's just, so a a number of researchers like uh, John Ioannidis, who's one of the most respected kind of epidemiological researchers in the world. He's a a medical doctor. he suggested that these retrospective studies should be should never be performed going forward because they they the data is just so worthless. Like it, it really is not gold standard data. We should focus only on producing gold standard data and and uh you know put put efforts elsewhere. But for a moment, let's just say that this data is legit. Let's say that it's rock solid, that there really is some sort of a signal there. Even in that story, the signal is remarkably small, particularly when we compare it relative to, say, something like smoking. But this is where it gets really tricky, and and uh, some some dishonest things occur when we look at the the rate of colon cancer across all Westernized populations. Everybody that lives in the United States lives in West, uh, you know, Western Europe, Northern Europe. Um, They have about a 5% chance of developing colon cancer at some point in their life. That's just kind of the background risk profile that we all have. If you take the the information from these studies as as gold standard, which it's not, but if we want to play that game and say that it is, eating processed meat like bacon, a large amount every day, your whole life, takes your risk profile in theory from 5% to 6%. But the way that, and that's the absolute risk profile. So uh, in theory, normal folks walking around five people out of a hundred will develop colon cancer at some point in their life. In theory, according to these studies, if they eat red meat every day, their whole life, large amount, it becomes six people out of a hundred develop colon cancer. Now, I think that that data is super flawed and actually really dubious as to if there is a real... Uh, association there. But the way that this gets reported is that red meat consumption or processed meat consumption is a 20% increase in colon cancer risk, because the difference between 5% is 6% is 18%. And why not just round up a little bit? And so it is reported as a 20% increase in colon cancer risk. And that is a, a completely unethical way to report that. And it's, uh, remarkably sensationalistic and, and, you know, it, it, just doesn't actually provide a true risk profile for what, what people are, 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 you know, trying to make informed decisions around their lives. So that's maybe one of the more egregious examples of how the, the association between meat and different, um, different disease states have, have been played out. And it, it's worth noting that, uh, you know, when we do interventional trials where folks eat, say like a ketogenic diet or a paleo type diet or what have you, um, all of the inflammatory markers, all of the things that we would normally associate with, uh, chronic degenerative disease, uh, systemic inflammation, those things pretty uniformly go down in these, these specific metabolic ward type interventions. So when it, it, now granted, we're not, feeding these people these diets for 20, 30, 40 years, it's it, it short term. But what we know for sure is that eating a standard American mixed diet that is rich in highly processed foods definitely increases the risk profile for an, all chronic degenerative diseases. And then when people are put on any type of a Mediterranean diet, ketogenic diet, paleo type diet, like anything that is is qualitatively different than the standard American diet, their metabolic health appears to improve, and and uh, you know it, it, it. This happens with a vegan diet, but it also happens with a paleo diet. So we we see similar risk profile improvements in these what I would consider to be much better studies, although they're short term. But we're actually look we know what the people are eating. We 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 track the biomarkers of health and disease, and. We see humans benefit on a spectrum of diets, meat inclusive or meat exclusive, uh, so long as we're minimizing, you know, highly processed foods.
1: Mm -hmm. One of the things that worries me is what is being replaced or what is replacing the meat. And so we have things now, you know, in some public schools like Meatless Mondays and foods like Beyond Burger becoming... Very popular. It's interesting because I was I was looking through. I was trying to find the ingredients to uh, Beyond Burger and some of these products. It's actually quite difficult to find on their website. And uh, the second ingredient is canola oil. Mm -hmm. You 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 had brought up some of the polyunsaturated fats earlier, which can be problematic. But I mean, in my you know twenty years of of researching nutrition, canola oil is not a healthy oil. And so what is, what is your take on on an oil like that and what how some of these products that are replacing meat could be problematic.
0: Yeah, you know, this is um it's a fascinating tactic that the let's say the plant-based people are using, which um some of them are still saying don't eat any meat at all, but others are saying no, 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 just just reduce meat just reduce meat consumption like that, 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 you know, uh, surely we we don't need to stop wholesale, but it's worth mentioning that uh, on average Americans consume about like two ounces of red meat per week. And we, we have shifted to much larger uh, amounts of pork and chicken consumption, which ironically from a sustainability standpoint is far, far worse because e- even, um, conventional feedlot cattle spend 70% of its life on grass which is highly sustainable you know what i mean it's it's grasslands and herbivores these things have been going on in some iteration uh, since vertebrates, you know, got onto the, the, the you know, land dwelling animals have been there. We've had some, something like that. And so that is a very sustainable proposition, whereas, uh, uh, harvesting large amounts of grains and soybeans and processing that and turning it into chicken and pork feed is not a particularly sustainable proposition. So, you know, there's a, again, there's a lot of nuance there that is not really getting well handled. and. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things that that popped up in the, the writing of this book is that one of, there haven't been a ton of studies looking at this, but there were a, a few studies that looked at children developing, you know, growing children and those who had a very low meat diet, a higher a supplemented meat diet, and one that had uh, just, just dairy supplemental to the diet and again, not a large number, not a ton of studies looking at this, but the, the, and this was performed in a, a rural African setting where, where folks are pretty poor and, and don't get access to, uh, you know, a, a ton of food in general. But what they, what was interesting was that, um, uh, these kids were, were equal caloric, but they were given more of just kind of the starchy, um, uh, food that available things like, uh, lentils or, or cassava or what have you. The other group had a meat supplement. The other group had, in addition to like the cassava or beans or whatever was kind of the staple diet. And the other one had a dairy supplement. The, the kids that were just given additional calories with, you know, more cassava, more, more corn, what have you. Um, didn't do remotely as well as the meat group and the, the the dairy supplemental group was kind of in between and didn't do as well based off of stature like the the kids that were given a meat supplement grew taller. they had fewer infections. Uh, they did better academically they, they had fewer you know health concerns and whatnot. And so it's interesting when would some of these meatless Monday topics come up, Uh, Like if you just look at the New York school system, upwards of 70 to 80% of the students there are are considered low income. 10% of the, the students that attend New York City schools are considered to be homeless. And many of them, the only meal they get in a day is provided by the school. So people will kind of offhandedly just quip like, well, why can't you just have a salad one day instead of eating your steak or what have you? And one, you, you know, I, I I think that that's a personal decision that everybody should be kind of making on their own and not necessarily guilted into it one way or the other. But the more salient point there is that there are a lot of kids in very disadvantaged situations that the, the access to public school food may be the food that they get. And even under the best of circumstances, those meals are not particularly good. But if we pull the, the paltry amount of dairy or, uh, animal products out of those meals what is left more starchy refined grains and crappy seed oils and that that is just what is there Mm -hmm. and we are are you know it's it's worth mentioning that in the 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 eu the european union um vegan diets are considered child abuse like they are not allowed; they're not Mm -hmm. legal to be administered to infants, or even really children. It, it, it's, you need to be 13, 14 before it starts not really being seen as a, a potentially dangerous and injurious thing to do. And it, it's worth mentioning that the American Dietetics Association, uh, in their, their website, they say that, uh, vegan and vegetarian diets are appropriate across all points of the lifespan. And there is absolutely no scientific literature that supports the notion that children will do well at all on a vegan or vegetarian diet. And, and uh, uh, you know, when we, you know, social justice topics are a really big, important thing that we all need to look at and consider. But when you con- think about the reality that one of the greatest defining features between a a more privileged kid versus a a kid that's getting a a rougher start in life is nutrition. And so these folks that are already at a a remarkable number of disadvantages uh, socioeconomically, um, largely wealthy, white, vegan-centric people are suggesting that the tiny amounts of animal products that they're getting out of these uh, you know, public assistance programs um, should be removed. And there have been some interesting initiatives where, uh, say, like a food stamp or EBT-type purchases could be used at, at farmer's markets, which I, I think are a great idea, but it, it's worth noting meat and dairy products are forbidden in this process. You can't buy those. You can buy Beans and rice, or you know, vegetables, which all, all of that is great, and it, it, it's wonderful supporting, uh, you know, community-driven agriculture. But it's ironic that animal products are not allowed as purchase options within these these public assistance programs. So there's a really massive bias within all that, and it, it, we make the case in the book and the film that. The people who are the most negatively impacted by policies like this are the people who are already the most negatively impacted by like every other socioeconomic consideration that you'd like to throw out there. Middle income and wealthier families are not going to be affected by this, but poorer families absolutely will be. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And that can sometimes be one of the issues uh, with social justice and idealism. It, it's just sometimes it's just not. Rational or rational or reason reasonable. So, what about this idea that people can get everything from plants? Um, you know, I would say in my seventeen years of practice, you know, one of the th- some of the things that I mainly see in in vegan and vegetarian patients are vitamin B twelve deficiencies and iron. Those are really the top two, and then there's mm-hmm. just kind of a mix of other deficiencies I see in those particular patients. And of course I do see those deficiencies in, in meat eaters as well, but it's usually a pretty glaring deficiency where say the B12 deficiency is, you know, we're almost starting to see some permanent neurological mm-hmm. issues and some serious anemias and things like that. So can you talk a little bit about you know can we really get everything we need just from plants and and how perfect uh and uh you know almost religious like in your eating and prep and and things like that does it take to do a, a well-rounded plant-based diet
0: yeah you know I I think the most honest deal there. And clearly I have a bias in this, but I I think it's honest to say that it's very, very difficult to to get everything that folks need. And it's worth mentioning that the, what do they call it now? The The RDA, but it's a recommended daily intake or RDI recommended daily intakes. Those are set at where disease processes begin. If you go below that, it is not titrated for optimum human health. And some of Lauren Cordain's work looking at, at kind of a, a paleo diet built with modern foods, um, people eating something like that, you know, meat, seafood, root shoots, vegetables, you know, uh, uh, highly nutrient dense um, foods across the board. People ended up getting several hundred times the, the RDIs of most nutrients. So, you know, there's a big, there's a big spread there between when disease starts versus what is optimal for, for human health, particularly in, in say like developing, uh, humans like, uh, in utero or, or small children again. And you pointed out that the B vitamin story is a challenge. Iron is a challenge. Zinc is a challenge. Uh, plants are, are tricky in that, uh, sometimes they have a lot of nutrients in them. But sometimes it is devilishly hard to get all the nutrients out. Uh, there are uh, different anti-predation chemicals, um, you know, uh, phytates, for example, that bind to metal ions. So uh, there was a great study that looked at folks eating um, uh, a, a zinc-rich meal from animal products, but they consumed corn tortillas with it, and then they had folks that that consumed a similar amount of carbs, but it wasn't from corn tortillas. But corn tortillas have a lot of phytates in it, which are these these organic acids that bind very strongly to metals. And it, it reduced the absorbable zinc for these people by like 85%. So even though there may be a lot of zinc in the meal, if you eat the wrong types of things with the meal, you may not absorb any of it. And iron is another you know, factor in that story. Um, it elongated omega-3 fats like EPA and DHA. You can get plant-based sources of this, but it has to be extracted from seaweed and put into a supplement form. There's, there's no food-based sources of EPA and DHA, and these are vital to health. Um, some people are better at, at, uh, taking the, uh, linoleic acid and elongating it into the, the EPA and DHA, but not all people are good at that. Like uh, Northern European folks are tend to be pretty poor at that. Different Native American groups are pretty poor at that. Some people from more Mediterranean or Asian lineage tend to be better at that. So there's some some big genetic variations there. Uh, some people are quite good at converting uh, different carotenoids into retinol, into the, the you know, the usable form of vitamin A and other people are terrible at it. So there's a lot of variation within all this. And it's worth mentioning that it's well understood that these nutrients that are of animal product origin are are well understood to be more bioavailable, tend to be more in the, the end state usable form like retinol, like EPA and DHA and whatnot. And so the the, the more plant based folks raise some valid points that you know some people do better or worse on these things. But this is where it's it's a, a bit disingenuine to say that everybody is going to thrive on this. And uh, again, for children, infants, uh, pregnant moms, um, there have been some really tragic examples of of uh, uh, parents feeding infants and children a, a, a strictly vegan diet, and the children have become very sick, even died. Uh, there are examples of vegan moms who are eating an exclusively vegan diet and their breast milk is so devoid of nutrients that the the infants end up again, getting sick or even dying that like they're, and it it's crazy in a way, because even as bad as some of the modern kind of junk food diets are, you don't see infants dying of malnutrition. Even when, when people are on a rotating deal of like you know, McDonald's heart hearties, you, you know, from, from one fast food mm-hmm. joint to another, like so long as there's some animal products in the mix, uh, we see all kinds of problems. We see hyperinsulinemia and we, we see actually a, an overfed state, but we don't see these, uh, life threatening diseases of, of overt nutrient deficiency. So, and again, this kind of circles back maybe a little bit to some of this kind of, uh, you know, marginalized population, social justice, uh, concerns. Um, if some, if you've got a, a small family, you know, family of four living at the margins, parents are working two jobs. They've got a couple of kids. Uh, how likely is it that they are going to be totally on point with their nutrition and in a, a spot where they're going to perfectly supplement their food to make all this stuff work. And this extends even into the developing world where, where people are being told that their traditional ways of eating and living, which includes animal products, that they should get rid of those because of the, you know, potential damage, uh, via climate change. And these people don't have a, a CVS or a Walmart to, to walk to and, and get, you know, a, a EPA DHA from from uh, cold extracted uh, uh, you know sea vegetables and stuff like that. So this is again when those the, these points that uh, it's very hard to have a nuanced conversation around this, and and you you can get a, a face the ire of of regular media, social media. Um, you, you look like kind of a goofball suggesting that. You know, plant-based diets may actually be injurious to people versus you know, like the panacea that they're sold as. But I, I think that the the science supports that pretty strongly. And again, particularly at the early and late stages of life, I think a, a person in their twenties, thirties, maybe forties, um, can potentially get away with this stuff in a a, a more effective way. But I, I think it's more. Uh, speaking to their relative tolerance not that they're actually thriving on the scenario and, and i would throw out the additional caveat that if somebody is eating a pretty terrible you know standard american diet and they they shift to a whole food vegan-based diet they're probably going to look feel and perform better until these overt nutrient deficiencies pop up and and this is where they're really going to need to supplement in a, an intelligent way to avoid those problems long term
1: mm-hmm yeah, it's it's hard to have a nuanced conversation about almost any anything these days, and I've been thinking a lot about, uh, you know, in in the West, you know, religion is is dying, and so a lot of people are just looking for meaning and purpose in their lives, and I think I think in some individuals, you know, just taking a position on something like becoming a vegan or or going on a plant-based diet. It does give some meaning and, and purpose to the individual and, and from a place where they probably couldn't get it uh, compared to how they used to be able to get it mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that could be part of it for some people. But unfortunately, when you when you identify with a particular tribe or, or position like that, it, it's very difficult to have a conversation. Uh, regarding anything contrary to those belief systems.
0: So, yeah. And you, you raise a good point like that. I think that that need for purpose and belonging is very powerful and it's very legitimate, you know, but, and I, I think that's a little bit of the the social upheaval yeah. that the United States is, is seeing right now. You know, people desperately want to belong to a tribe to your point mm-hmm. and, uh, man, it, it gets devilishly hard to, um, to go in and provide much commentary, you know, to, to folks in that scene, um, without really, really putting oneself in the crosshairs for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So one of the other
1: misconceptions out there that I'd like to, to clarify is this kind of, you know, negative view of cattle and, and its effects on the environment. So a lot of people think they have issues with the methane you know is there enough land for for the cattle to graze on don't they consume too much water Uh, aren't they contributing to climate change things like that so can you talk a little bit about those issues and cattle and try and clarify some of those misconceptions
0: yeah you set that up beautifully for me and i hope i don't screw this up but there's a lot of (laughs) of moving moving parts to this but you know uh there was a, a piece that has really made the the, the circles within social media that um, animal husbandry contributes to 38% of greenhouse gas emissions, You know, kind of model, modern animal husbandry. And this was just kind of thrown out there. There really wasn't much citation attached to it. And it's been picked up in scientific papers. It's definitely been picked up by the media. And when you really dig into those claims, what you find is that actually a, a greenhouse gas emissions from from cattle and, and animal has been writ large is somewhere more long, about 3%, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But it's in an interesting context. Um, you and I are greenhouse gas emitters right now. We're exhaling carbon dioxide, and that that is one of the primary greenhouse gases. Methane is of particular, uh, interest from climate change perspectives because it's a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is. But it's worth noting that methane only has about a 10 year lifespan in the atmosphere. It, it gets exposed to ultraviolet radiation and can get cleaved and it gets degraded into water and carbon dioxide. And then that carbon dioxide becomes part of the carbon cycle, uh, the sun shines on the earth, and if there are plants there to absorb that light, they engage in this process called photosynthesis, where they they take uh, carbon dioxide and and use it to build the substrates that you know all of the rest of life basically feeds upon, and uh, the byproducts of that is a little bit of water and a little bit of oxygen, and that is a, a fairly stable cycle. It will go up or go down a little bit depending on how much greenery is around. But by and large, organic living systems are, are kind of in a, a somewhat stable equilibrium with regards to the greenhouse gases that are emitted versus produced. But where some of the danger comes in on this, on the, so one is that the greenhouse gas emissions from animal products are much, much less than what is generally claimed. The the other piece to this story that's really important to consider is that if we start demonizing all greenhouse gases from any source, then we get into some dangerous areas. So recently it was discovered that termites produce monumental amounts of methane. Uh, Shellfish on the ocean floor produce huge amounts of methane. Uh, rice patties, producing rice in different locations. Also a major contributor to methane production. Do we, it, 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 because of this, people have suggested that we should eradicate termites, shellfish, and possibly curtail rice production in an effort to mitigate climate change. And this is just insanity. <laughs> like it, mm-hmm. it, it uh, you know, it, and again, mm-hmm. this is one, they really when we look at it from the perspective of a cycle, then yes, some is going into the atmosphere, but also some of it is coming back out of the atmosphere, and and there's kind of a dynamic equilibrium there that has existed throughout, again, life on Earth, and there tends to be ebbs and flows in this, and it, it's a little bit... Reminiscent of of you know like two thousand seven two thousand eight when folks were talking about like the housing bubble that was going to happen and people like Ben Bernanke said oh we've offloaded risk you know and I, I I'm a little bit of a econ wonk and and like to dig into that stuff but there's this hubris that that many people have that we have this profound insight and control over nature and from my perspective we just do not and. Not surprisingly, the 2008 housing bubble exploded and it nearly destroyed, you know, the global economic scene. And in this case of, of trying to talk about why we should, you know, remove animal husbandry from the food system, it is a small piece of what is, you know, a rather large and complex puzzle that includes things like termites and shellfish and whatnot. And we had kind of an interesting natural experiment at the beginning of COVID when, uh, transportation was largely shut down and what we during this time much less travel occurred via automobiles trucks airplanes um, the number of grazing animals did not decrease if anything it increased and carbon dioxide and methane emissions decreased during that time so the transportation sector is really the place that we should be you know focusing some attention and i'm not actually in the camp that we should like Wholesale do away with uh, with fossil fuels tomorrow. Like we don't have yet good alternatives there, and so if you if you really want to mess the world up, uh, uh, make fossil fuels super expensive, and then people will start cutting down trees and <laughs> deforestation to to feed themselves and and cook their foods and and stuff like that. But uh, this is a really big topic that we we did as a, a pretty thorough job of kind of pulling out was this kind of methane topic, and I hopefully I did a, a decent job on on that here. But you also raised the water consumption issue, and I, I don't want to bore people too much, but when we consider the water usage in the 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 cow story in particular, oftentimes what is thrown out there is that well. If, if we just took the food that was fed to cattle and, and fed that to humans, then we could feed far more people. One problem with that currently is that about 50% of the food that is produced is thrown away. So we already produce more food than what we eat. And, and uh, uh, so we, we definitely have some buffer to increase food production, even within current models. Um, but one could easily make the case that we're overproducing calories and underproducing nutrition. So even though there are calories floating around out there, like, are we actually producing enough nutrient dense food that we can, we can feed humans so that they're not sick from the food that they're eating, which I, I think is a worthwhile question. But when you look at the water consumption story, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the water that falls on grass, that feeds grasslands, which uh, hundred percent pastured meat spends all of its life on grass. Even conventional meat spends 70% of its life on grass, but that water is reported as if it was being stolen from somewhere else. So, you know, papers have been written saying that uh, uh, cattle are a disproportionately large water hog, that there's all this water that is allocated to them. But again, this is just water that falls on grasslands and, That's a good thing. We want grasslands. We want vibrant grasslands. Like they're they're interestingly a a major um, sink potentially for carbon sequestration. When the the grass grows and the grasslands are are healthy and there's a vibrant interplay between grass and grazing animals, it appears that large amounts of, of carbon dioxide can be stored underground in the form of carbon. So, you know, it really misrepresents what that water is doing a good example of of some arguably poor water usage is actually almonds like a a huge amount of almonds are produced in california and they're mainly irrigated with groundwater and that groundwater is getting pumped out of the ground far faster than what it's getting replaced and 70 or 80 percent of the almonds that are produced in california are then sold abroad mainly to china so we're taking the tiny bit of groundwater that we have left in this most, um, productive bit of farmland that arguably in the world, but definitely in the United States. And we're mining this water producing almonds and then selling it abroad. And so it, it, you know, Hmm. there's no outcry around almond production or almond milk. And again, I'm not necessarily advocating that, uh, that that we curtail that per se, but it, let's just uh, compare apples to apples in the story. Like, if we're really concerned concerned about water resource allocations, like that is a, a damn good place to look. And so, the water piece is is another kind of kind of spicy meatball to unpack. We we talked a little bit about the the methane story, and you know, again, I think I alluded to this a little bit. Um, some people raise the question of, well, how much more food could we we provide to humans if we didn't feed animals? Uh, conventional beef still spends 30, uh, uh, 70% of its life on grass. It wouldn't be that hard to convert that to a mainly grass-based approach, although it's worth mentioning that there are some places like Northern Canada, even places in, in uh, Northern United States, we're overwintering animals with some amount of grain is a a smart thing and people have been doing it for hundreds of years so we also need to not be so idealistic about things that we create scenarios in which uh viable long-term solutions are are made impossible because you know people become kind of meat elitist but it's worth mentioning that pork and chicken are 100% dependent on uh kind of grain and soybean inputs and so if if we were to acknowledge a, a scenario in which um significant amounts of resources are are you know diverted into animal feed, it's in the 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 case of pork and chicken, but this is this is kind of a a funny aside, but Leonardo DiCaprio uh, produced this, this film in conjunction with the National Geographic Society before the flood. Mm-hmm. It's a very beautiful film. It's very scary. It, it's compelling. You know, it warns us about climate change. It, it tells us about how terrible animal husbandry is for the planet, specifically cattle. And then it recommends that we eat more chicken and less beef. And mm-hmm. the irony is that this the, enormous amounts of money went into this film. Very successful, smart people. And nobody sat down and asked the question is chicken or beef the more sustainable options of the two? And so it shows you how even very smart, moneyed, connected, world changing people can get something very, very wrong. Like it is an easy calculation to, to make, to show that a uh, chicken is a, a terrible option from a resource management perspective relative to cattle. And mm-hmm. prior to the 1940s, uh, before the industrialization of, of the, uh, the U S food system, there was a, a a saying that came up like a kind of a political thing, a, a chicken in every pot. And that's because chicken used to be a very rare, rarely consumed item because most people ate lamb and and beef, a little bit of pork and very occasionally chicken because chicken was this kind of background item that uh, people had chickens but they weren't raised at an industrial scale um, because they didn't exist at an industrial scale. They are a background feature of ecology relative to ruminants and, and grazing animals. So mm. you know it's funny um, because we've been able to industrialize our food system, it's really, papered over the way that ecology in the world works. And so I, I think it's easy for people to make this assumption that, oh, you know, chickens are small, so probably they don't take up a lot of resources and whatnot, but they're a, a monogastric organism. Like they can't eat exclusively grass and live off that. They can pick at it some, but they have to eat bugs and seeds and, and some some more nutrient-dense items for them to, to function. So, again, I, I know that that was a, a lot to cover. I don't know if I did a great job on it, but those are kind of the three big areas that folks bring up with regards to the uh, the different environmental impacts that are associated with meat, meat production and consumption. Yes. Yeah.
1: That tied it all together quite nicely. It's interesting you brought up water because I think it, it takes one gallon of water to make one almond. And I think it's around 254 gallons of water to make a single avocado. And so a lot you know, a lot of the people that are, are saying these things about cattle and resources and things like that. If if you follow the water trail, as you mentioned, to some of these plant-based crops, you're you're seeing massive amounts of, of water usage and depletion. And also large numbers of rabbits and, and mice, small animals like that, uh, they get killed pretty readily uh harvesting plant-based crops and that's just another thing to think about you know in this whole conversation and let's talk a little bit about ethics of of eating animals this is something i've, I've thought about for a while and i was i was really persuaded by dr william mccaskill he's a professor at oxford mm-hmm. university uh, he's the founder of the effective altruism movement and he was talking about about the ethics of of eating animals he has a really interesting perspective you can tell he thinks a lot about these things you know being a philosopher but in any case if our he says if our goal is to have obviously as you know happy healthy humans and and healthy happy animals on the planet if we decrease our consumption of animals then we're going to decrease the number of Happy cows having happy, healthy lives, and so that's a net negative because we want more happy, healthy cows living and and thriving and and being happy. And so, if we all just stopped uh, eating meat or significantly reduced our consumption, we would have fewer happy lives. So, how do you look at the you know is it unethical to eat animals and and you know the various arguments for and against that?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question and you know when we when we were putting the book and the film together, we we agonized over which angle we should start with first and we actually thought about um the ethics discussion first. And as we progressed through the book, what we found was that there was a really compelling case that um you know, the ethics it's an interesting discussion to just say, "Well, we we should kill or harm as few things as possible." And it's like, okay, I'll, I'll maybe sign off on that. But then, what does that really mean in a, a a food system that feeds a planet? You know, and it's presented as if there is no death associated with industrial row crop food systems. And there's actually a, a really fascinating paper called the Least Harm Principle. That uh, was uh, from a, a professor of, of um, ecology and uh, kind of in the, the agriculture scene where they did some calculations around how many animals are killed as a consequence of animal husbandry. But then how many animals are killed in the production of wheat and corn and and, and not, you know, small animals, uh, birds, insects, you know, invertebrates, uh, changing of of you know, all these different ecosystems and whatnot. And what was interesting was that they came back with the, the least harm way of eating arguably was a grass centric model with lots of large grazing animals, uh, fruit, nuts, and, and different root and tubers. And so really minimizing like the, the grain production and and whatnot. And this was the, the way that, uh, we optimized the least harm principle. And ironically, this looks exactly what we recommend for the most nutrient dense diet also. And so that was kind of interesting. And then it also possibly maximizes total food production, ironically. So Mm -hmm. when you start having a discussion around ethics it, it you know you can operate at a very kind of knee-jerk response level well it, it, it's bad to kill an animal it's like okay maybe but you know wh- what's the context there and, and, and Diana detailed both in the book and the film some examples of folks who were or were vegan and they started a farm they're like we want to have a farm so they started a farm and they motored long for a while until they figured out wow we can't grow things without inputs like fertilizer. And for a while they tried to kind of fart around with some like vegan, you know, inputs like biochar and, and, uh, uh, seaweed and stuff like that. But they were, they're fairly far inland and they're like, okay, so we're trucking massive amounts of seaweed from the ocean to feed our farm. This doesn't seem very sustainable. So they were like, okay, we need to bring animals in here. So we're going to use the animals to, um, to nutrify the soil, to grow the plants that we want to eat. And then what they found was that if they wanted that to work, they actually needed to breed the animals. And if you bred the animals, then you started having a problem with like how many you were going to have. And these folks went through this process of being vegan, then vegan farmers, and then vegan farmers who used animals, and then not vegan farmers anymore, but just farmers, because they realized that they needed to consume the animals as, as part of this whole life cycle process. There, there are some really uh, kind of heart wrenching stories out there of these, these uh, begin, you know, oriented folks who uh, do these animal rescues and they've got these very old cows and chickens and pigs and all kinds of different animals. And they're facing the same end of life dilemmas that we face with like our parents and grandparents. And one day we will all face like they're suffering they're they're not in great quality of life what do we do with them and some of these vegan folks have suggested well maybe we need to euthanize these animals and some people agree with it and other people will say well you're a horrible person we'll cancel culture you if you hmm. if you do but instead they're waiting for these animals to quote die a natural death which Maybe that means getting eaten alive from a coyote, which happens in in some cases. And like a uh, man, some of the nature show stuff you can find out there, where I, you know, literally, an animal is being it, 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 its innards are being eaten while it is still alive. Like that is not a pleasant way to go. And uh, you think about a a modern butchering and processing scenario where the, the animals are kept calm because that, that makes for better meat. And also it's just a, an ethical thing to do. And then they are shot once and they're, they're gone. And there is a certain amount of that. That's a heavy thing. Like a life is taken, but one of the biggest challenges in this, this um, kind of ethical consideration is that people have forgotten that we are part life in order for it to go on, has to have death. You know, there's a cycle. It, it sounds very trite, but you know, it's kind of a Lion King cycle of life type stuff. Like that is actually the the real deal, and it's a it's a it's a tough pill to swallow because we have to face our own mortality and our you know our own um, reality that our our existence will at least in this form not go on forever. And I think that this is one of the you know, multiple angles. I think that there's a lot of, of good intention in these, these folks. Oftentimes, I think that there have been examples of animals being terribly mistreated. And, and again, I would make the case that pork and, and chicken, the, it, unless it is raised in a, a truly kind of pastured setting, which makes it far more expensive and much less a a, a mainstay staple, um, the, 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 you know, the raising of of chickens and pork arguably is a, a much less humane process versus even conventional cattle production because the cows spend the bulk of their time on grass. And uh, these uh, confined area feeding operations, although not great, they're a good bit better than the way that um, pork and chickens spend their whole whole life. So, the 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 ethics topic is really complex. I, I guess is kind of the the long and short of it. But we ended up looking at the. The the reality that it's very, very difficult to feed humans a nutrient appropriate diet without animal products. We looked at the reality that um, animal husbandry may be a critical feature of, of mitigating climate change. Like animals raised properly on grass may provide for a massive uh, carbon sink, a removal of carbon from the atmosphere and they all properly raised grazing animals could, could be the only tool that we have to reverse desertification. So there's a very powerful case for animals to be included from a nutrition perspective, from uh, an environmental perspective. So then that really changes the calculus around what we're, we're talking about from an ethics perspective. Like if it's hard or impossible for people, particularly in developing countries to get adequate nutrition without animal products, if uh, there are no other food options available to lots of people because of the, the environment that they live in. If, um, traditional food ways have included animal products for centuries or thousands of years, and now they're being under siege because a, a mainly white Western vegan centric population is saying that they're, they're evil or they're causing damage to the environment. Like, is that, is that really okay in this kind of, you know, woke modern age where, where, uh, you know everybody is supposed to have the sanctity of their life ways kind of honored it changes the story around ethics a lot and i think it still does default back to we should endeavor to do least harm we should endeavor to have the the best quality of life for the the animals that that we are taking their lives and and eating them and benefiting from that but that doesn't have to be a a heinous act it doesn't have to be a a uh, you know a heartless process, but it also needs to be acknowledged that it's, it's part of a cycle. And that this, this goal of like a, a bloodless food system, I I think it's laudable, but it's also pretty misguided and and ultimately it largely impossible to achieve. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So the book is sacred cow and the
1: documentary is also sacred cow and that's available on Amazon and then how would you like people to to find you online what is your your website and your other contact information
0: uh robwolf.com is my my main website uh, i have a community called the healthy rebellion people can check that out join.thehealthyrebellion.com and although i have some social media accounts i do not i uh, I have an assistant that posts on those and I don't curate them at all anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, social media has just gotten to be a little bit crazy. And so, um, my wife and I do a podcast also called, uh, the healthy rebellion and that's kind of the main, main stuff that I do. Excellent.
1: Well, fantastic work on, on the documentary and the book. I think it's going to help a lot of people make a decision about, about how they want to eat and, uh, and who they want to support. So, a full transcript of this will be posted on drhedberg.com. Just go to my website and search for sacred cow and I'll have all the links to Rob's website and the documentary and the book. So thank you for tuning in everyone. Take care. This is Dr. Hedberg and I will talk to you next time.
0: If you enjoy The Dr. Hedberg Show, you can support it by sharing each episode on your social media channels, like Facebook, and by leaving a review on iTunes. Please visit drhedberg.com, that's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com, to access the show notes and resources for today's episode.